Welcome to Your Cron, short for Your Chronicles. I'm your host, Scott Pitney. Your Cron is a podcast where we chronicle ordinary people and their extraordinary stories. We refer to ordinary people on this show as people who are non-celebrities. Our goal is simple, keep our audience entertained and occasionally perhaps even inspire, motivate, or educate while our guests build their audio legacy via this unique opportunity. So let's get right to our next extraordinary story. Hey everybody, welcome to the next episode. So we're here with, well, I'm not sure what to call her because she's going to introduce herself. But anyway, she has an amazing, extraordinary story. And um, I'm not sure, well, let me give you a little backstory. So I actually, we're visiting tonight and I, I walked in from outside and I heard a little bit of the story and I went, wow, that would make a really good podcast. So we're, we're sitting in the kitchen, we've got football on, the Patriots are playing the Titans and we're drinking wine and various other things and guys are outside smoking cigars. And uh, so anyway, that gives you a little picture of what we're doing. We're just hanging out and uh, having a good time. And I heard this extraordinary story. So um, where's a good place to start in this extraordinary story? Because I, I didn't hear the beginning of it. So wh- where did y'all start? What did I miss? Well, um, and, and, and call yourself whoever you would like to. I am twin number two, 1969. And the story was about a heartbreak many, many years ago. So the story started after a bottle of wine where it went, I met a guy, a guy from Louisiana, B number two. Let's call him B number two. Met B number two when I was probably 14 years old at a roller skating rink. Saw Rocky, the movie, in Lafayette, Louisiana, and skated at Rainbow Roller Rink. Uh, Fast forward many years later, dated him as an adult, uh, spent a few years with him in a serious relationship. That relationship ended up in a gunfire. A gunfire. A gunfire. Okay, what, how old were you when this, can give us an idea of when this was? How old were you? You you started the relationship at 14, so when did the gunfire happen? How old were you? Way after 1969. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, that was a bad question. So, anyway, there was a gunfire. (laughs) Proceed from there. All right, fast forward. I was in my 40s. Okay. He was in his 40s. Uh, B number two moved back to Houston. We were both dating. He said he had cancer. Okay. Pancreatic cancer, which is bad. very, very bad. Right. Patrick Swayze died of it, and we know right. others. Right. Um, he lied, I think. And one night he left my house. We were on a bowling league. Okay, wait a minute. Why did you think he lied? I never got invited to the doctor's office. He had different procedures. He needed somebody to drive home. Never asked me to do it. Um, He built it up to get sympathy. Many people, twin number one, others, 
were involved. Never did we ever see any true proof that he had cancer. Okay. So those kind of micro events led you to believe that he was lying about that. But was there anything else prior to that that made you think this person was a dishonest person? Um, yes. He, when he would drink, he would become a different person. When he became a different person, he talked about the cancer. When he drank, he became a different person and was violent. Um, how so, how, to what ex extremity was he violent? How violent was he? Well, there was one point in time that really pivoted our relationship to where I had to break up. I didn't have a choice. And it was a Tuesday night, a work night, and we are on a bowling league. Mm. And as much as he was loving and caring and doing, we were on a bowling league. He had a ball called Sunshine. It was my bowling ball. And we went bowling, drank different forms of alcohol, became a different person, left that bowling ball at my house. Six hours later, I get a phone call. And well, tell us about the phone call. The first phone call was him probably at midnight on a Tuesday night. Um, belligerent, drunk, alcoholic, yelling, screaming, hung up, hung up. The next phone call probably at 2 or 3 in the morning was from twin number one. Twin number one? Twin number one's running around in the kitchen right now. So she's, she's, did you want twin number one to say something? I did. Oh, well, we can, uh. She's uh, okay. So when twin number one gets back, if she wants to say something, she can. If not, that's okay too. But so what happened after that phone call? Well, the Tuesday night of her work week, probably two or three in the morning, twin number one calls twin number two. I finally answer the phone, and the response was, "He's been life flighted. Someone's been life flighted. I'm going to the house." Wow. And then what happened? So no one really knew, and twin number one at the time was the first one upon arrival to the house with yellow tape. There was a police car with one person inside. Two people lived at the house. B number one, B number two, B number one... We didn't know if he got shot or where he was or if it was B number two. Hmm. So questions were asked as twin one was walking up, a police officer recognized us. We were all in the same small city. Um, long story short, my guy that I had been dating was life-lighted. The other guy was sitting in the police car. And... And so what happened after that? Well, what was stated was someone shot me. So as life flight took him away... Shot he, me meaning shot meaning, who? Shot who? Meaning my guy B, number two, and life flight said someone shot me. So as they took him away, all he told the police was I got shot by somebody. So, the next person to accuse is the person living with him, who was innocent. Mm. So, he got thrown in the car, the police car. Uh, they analyzed his hands for gunpowder. 
hours later, you know, he's released. Next. Obviously, no gunpowder was found. No gunpowder. No evidence, physical evidence that he had anything to do with the shooting. So he was gone. He was free. B, number two, puts the blame on a neighbor. A neighbor shot me. And then he goes in a coma. Wow. Okay. So he goes into a coma. And at this point, the only thing that people know is based on what he said that a neighbor shot him. Yes. Okay. How long was he in a coma? Over a week. And twin one, twin two is by the side at the hospital emergency room, not really knowing the truth. But the police investigation say, do you think he shot himself? Do you think it was his roommate? Do you think it was a neighbor? I didn't know. I, I honestly didn't know. I what, get two phone you, calls. You didn't know, but what was your gut telling you at that time? What What did you think? Uh, I was in shock. I didn't want to believe anything. I knew he was depressed at moments. I never thought he could do something like this. Um, someone said that he brought... You, did, you didn't want to believe what? That I, it, I didn't want to believe that he or? tried to commit suicide. Okay. But the details led up to where he brought a collage of photographs from his daughter that he loved dearly into his pickup truck. Pictures of me into his pickup truck. He brought a shotgun, put it underneath his chin. It slipped and blew out the left side of his neck. Mm. He blamed it on someone else doing it. Mm. The police called me, asked me these interrogating questions, asking me if I thought it could be true. And at the time, he lied about having cancer to my best belief. His parents were in Cabo for vacation and said, it could have been you, you should get out of it, <laughs> the what, relationship. What, what were some of the interrogating questions? Do you remember what some of the interrogating questions? Uh, and, and give us an idea of how long ago this was from today, just so we can have some perspective on, on what kind of time frame of memory you're trying to, to draw from. Eight years ago. Eight years ago. Eight okay. Years ago. So, do you remember some of the interrogating questions that the police were asking you at that time? I remember a few of them vividly, uh, especially the ones from his family who called me and said it could have been you. Two of them. His well, dad in, in, in an, an accusing type of way, or they first asked, "Do you think it was his roommate, B number one, that could have done it?" I said no, and they said, "We always thought he could do it. It could have been you. You should get out." Mm. Came from his parents and mm -hmm. it came from a cousin mm. okay so he's in a coma for, for a week you're interrogated by the police you and your your uh, twin one and two are at the hospital taking all this in what what, uh, what was that week tell us about that week I mean it must have been many sleepless nights I mean what what kind of emotions were you going through that week? Actually, you, you still really kind of love the person, so you juggle between believing what you think is the truth versus what your heart wants to tell you to believe. And twin number one was a saint in being there to do whatever is needed. Mm. Um, I honestly thought it was my way out of the relationship, and I took it to my advantage. So a week with him in a coma... And beginning to realize he did commit suicide and it could have been me. Um, I prepared myself to 
absent, but I wanted to make sure he came out of the coma and he could understand that I didn't have a choice. And there was a Sunday, maybe a week after he was in, Dr. Red of Houston walks in on a Sunday in his Crocs <laughs> hmm. with three other nurses cussing like he does at A&M games, as I hear. Mm. Said, you motherfucker, you're going to live in 20 years of being in the ER with gunshot wounds. You blew your neck out, but you're going to live. And the worst that he was going to get was limited movement from his left arm and some hearing loss. And I got to see the x-ray were all, the bullet fragments were still there, and they weren't going to do anything about it. Mm. And he was coherent, and he knew it, and he realized it, and they said, we're shipping you to a psychiatric ward for a week or two to get evaluated. And that was my exit. So you wanted to exit, and he's in a coma. Obviously, you didn't know how long he was going to be in the coma, so how long were you... Did you have any thoughts to how long you were mentally prepared to endure his coma? Were you willing to stay there for a week, two weeks, months, years? What Did that ever cross your mind? Actually, it was an induced coma, and I think it was a little bit over a week, less than two. Mm. And he did slightly come out of it when men. So I knew he could understand enough. Yeah, and you said... When I walked in on this story, you said that doctor shook him? He, he shook him, and he, he said, you're a lucky motherfucker. Oh, uh, so, so he shook him. So he shook him because he said, you know what, you're pretty damn lucky. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that of all the years that he has seen ER gunshot wounds, he's probably one of the top four with that kind of um, damage to be so, able to be almost okay. So that shaking woke him up a little bit? That he, he was coming out of, they, they induced the coma, they let him come out of it, doctor came in, he was coherent. He was coherent enough to understand. Was that the first time you saw him coherent? Yep. Yep. Was there anything that you wanted to ask him or say to him at that time? Mm. Um, twin two will be silent on that one. <laughs> Respectfully taken. <laughs> So, tell us about the exit from the relationship after that. Um, he can do. He had a, a few days before he had to go to the psychiatric ward. I knew I wasn't going to go there because you couldn't. And bathing, just simple things. You know, I my, my twin one really took care of him. And I I wasn't there as much mm. just because of the situation. Mm -hmm. But towards the end, I did. I helped him shower. I helped him bathe. I took care of him. And he knew all through all those steps and processes that it was the last time I would ever see him. He knew it. He knew it. How, how did he know that? Did you tell him or did he just, was, do you think he sensed it or? He knew it. Okay. Yeah, he knew it. I have okay. two kids. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tolerate a risk of that. Yeah. So, um, it was very, very difficult, and he did do the blaming game of you can't leave me in this situation, and I did. I had to. Hmm. Do you feel like the coma changed him at all, or was he still the same guy after the coma as he was before? 
that kind of saved his life because what he did to himself that was self-inflicted could have killed him. If they didn't self-induce him into a coma, he wouldn't live. He has a daughter, a grandbaby, and so many other things to live for. I think that's what keeps him going now. Um, he would have survived either way, no matter if I would have left sooner or not. Okay. So after you're out of the relationship, um, or at what point did you feel like, this is a done deal, I'm out? Did you... Did you when he pulled the trigger. Um, I knew it. Was it a sense of relief? Yep. And, yep. Yeah. And so, um, did he try to contact you, or have you had any contact since then? At after his recovery period? Yes. And yes. So you live with the fear of, ooh, it could have been you because two, his two family members told me it could have been me. You kind of wish he would have finished the job, as sad as that can be, because you worry about your life. So I moved from a house that I wish I still had and Never tried to speak to him again or let my kids around him. And in hindsight, I think he's okay now or better. But you never know at that point what that person could do to you after the fact. Hmm. That may have to be edited out. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the truth. Well, what, um, I mean, there, there, there's so many... That's like a uh, ext extreme relationship from hell. Uh, mm -hmm. You know what? There's so many takeaways from that um, that I can only imagine. But what? What are yours? What are your takeaways from that experience? Uh, my takeaway is to tell anyone I'm a very strong person, but I felt very weak at that moment. And if you ever feel scared for you or your kids. And you're in a relationship and you feel fearful, you need to get out. And you do whatever it takes to get out and be safe. If it means moving, changing your phone number, moving, whatever it takes, you need to do it. Because you just never know what someone could be capable of. So since then, have you, have you had any relationships that, that you sensed were going that way? That uh, you got, wait, I've been through this before. I'm cutting ties now. Never had a relationship that risky in my whole entire life. Yeah. Ever again or ever before. Yeah. So, for our audience that's in the dating mode right now, <laughs> what uh, what lessons or, or, I guess, final words do you have for them? Uh, you see red flags believe the red flags when you see them. If your gut tells you to do something or you should worry, you should and do something about it before you fall in love. Well said. Well, twin number two. <laughs> Thank you very much for being on the show, on my podcast, and uh, I really appreciate it. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs>